the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, once again, continuing our sojourn to the great state of South Australia as we explore the history of the Royal Australian Air Force and its various personnel. Today, it's Air Commodore David Peach, AM. Now, David joined the Royal Australian Air Force in 1969. As a fighter pilot, he flew Sabres and Mirages prior to a tour as a flying instructor. He was subsequently one of the very first RAAF pilots to undergo FA-18 training in the United States of America. In 1990, he was appointed commanding officer of number three squadron operating the FA-18. He then had senior defence roles, including command of 81 wing, command of surveillance control group and senior roles in capability development division. In 1999, he was awarded the Order of Australia for his contributions to aerospace development. David retired from full-time service as an Air Commodore in 2004, remaining on the active reserve list. In his reserve capacity, he oversighted flying operations for defence air shows and led the defence planning team for the biennial Australian International Air Shows. His only involvement now with the RAAF is providing guidance on the return to flight status of the RAAF Sabre at the Tamora Aviation Museum. Well, in our sojourn in South Australia, looking at the history of the Royal Australian Air Force, David, a remarkable man. You've had a remarkable career, sir. I've been just lucky. Right place at the right time, I suspect. Yeah. Well, 1969 was your year. You joined in 1969. I'm interested to know why, because you're only 20 years of age. Uh, I'd taken up gliding uh, as a youth, and I was working on my parents' uh, fruit block at Wakery in South Australia here, and I decided being a fruit blocker wasn't for me, and I saw an advertisement in the um, advertiser for pilots, and I hadn't had a particularly illustrious time at school, but I met all the minimum education requirements. So in about October, November, I think I applied. And by the following March, I was in the Air Force. So prior that date, you had that, that thought had never entered your head or, or had you thought about it occasionally? Uh, look, I guess... Um, I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed flying, and uh, you know, it just came as a sort of a light bulb type thing when I read the advertisement, and uh, they sent me the um, uh, the brochures. And what still sticks in my mind, there was a picture of a pair of Mirages taking off. Uh, must have been very early in the Mirages' career, and I was taking off from formation, and I just said to myself, "I want to do that." <laughs> and, and you end up doing and it. I so ended up doing it. Vision achieved. Yes. 100% success. So, all right, you've, you've joined, you're in, you've been accepted. So in that first, say, 12 months, what was it like? What were the steps you went through to 
actually then get into a cockpit and fly? Uh, well, I was uh, on one of those uh, short wind jill, longer Mackie courses, and when I joined the F, when I started, I decided I want to do this, and uh, I'd never worked so hard in all of my life. Um, I'd been lazy, lazyish at school, never did my homework, all that, that typical sort of teenager. And I was absolutely determined to uh, graduate. And I discovered there were things like students getting scrubbed. You mean you can't pass this? No, no. And it turns out that, you know, less than half of us passed. And uh, at some point in time, we were told that uh, if you want to go to your selected employment, you have to do... We uh, have to do very well on course. So uh, the guy that came, say, first in course gets his first choice, typically. And so I was just absolutely determined to do as well, if not better, than anybody else. How rigorous was that instruction, that training? Uh, very good. Uh, Air Force training was very good. At times it was quite, uh, uh, how would you put it, uh, very directive. Um, but I had a whole bunch of very good instructors, and uh, I don't recall flying with anybody that I didn't like. Some students had problems with their instructors, but I never did, and uh, I developed a good rapport with all of them, as I recall, and uh, I was very thankful for the, uh, for the uh, teaching that they did. So many of the people that I've had the privilege of talking to uh, told me that because the Royal Australian Air Force is a small Air Force in terms of population size, therefore our training is that much better than perhaps some of the larger Air Forces around the world. To what extent would you agree or not agree with that? Look, I would agree with that. I think um, certainly in my time they had plenty of people applying to be pilots, so the Air Force could be quite selective and quite uh, almost brutal in terms of performance. And I think the outcome of all of that was they, um, the Air Force got some fairly good quality outcomes from the pilots, for the pilots. Yep. With the instructors, I mean, was there any attempt made by the instructors if one particular person was struggling a little bit to try and find a way around that struggle to encourage them to go on? Or Absolutely. Was simple... Absolutely. Yeah. No, there was no doubt about it. Um, and uh, look, I was an instructor later on and uh, you would, you know, if students were struggling with one, one particular instructor, sometimes uh, they'd change instructors because it might have been a personality issue or instructional style. Now, Air Force wanted to graduate as many as possible, but Air Force was not prepared to lower its standards. Yeah, well, that's that's one of our great strengths, I would agree. Uh, you've uh, you've gone Sabres, you've gone Mirages, you've gone Mackies. How would you compare those three aircraft in the, the evolution of the Royal Australian Air Force? Uh, well, I how would I describe it? Um, I did most of my pilot's course on the Mackie and <coughs> really, really uh, found the aeroplane was a nice aeroplane to fly. Uh, I can still remember my first ever takeoff. Uh, I thought I was like being having flown the windjill for 15 or so hours, you know, a rattly old thing, which, you know, I later became an instructor on, and I really loved that aeroplane. Uh, but it was smooth, smooth acceleration, nice instrumentation, kind of a brand new aeroplane, brand new aeroplane smell. It was kind of really cool. Oh, it's like getting into a new car, is it? Absolutely. They were brand new. <laughs> 
<laughs> you also, I believe, were one of the very first to undergo FA-18 training in the United States of America. How did that happen? Right place at the right time, I guess, as well. Um, the uh, How did it happen? Uh, I was just simply selected to undergo the training. And we formed a car. We had six people, six pilots. We formed the cadre, the initial cadre of... Uh, Air Force pilots uh, to fly the F-18. Now we'd had a couple of guys fly the aeroplane before that on exchange but we were actually the initial cadre uh, who then came back to Australia and uh, formed the um, well introduced the aeroplane via the OCU uh, to the rest of the pilots. Did you actually fly those planes back or how, how did they get back here? <laughs> That's a story in itself. Um, please, please share it. Uh, well, we did our training on US Navy aeroplanes. So we went to California, the Naval Air Station Lemoore, and at VFA 125, we did our training. We were there for about nine months. And I can tell you, the Navy were fantastic. They were very, very, very good to us. Um, and, uh, you know, I've become a bit of a Yanko file as a result, result of that. Uh, uh, and then we went to Patuxent River on the East Coast, where our first two aeroplanes, which had been built by McDonnell Douglas, were. So we took delivery of them in Patuxent River. And then we flew them for about a month there, and then they were ferried to Australia. Now, uh, much to my chagrin, I wasn't one of the pilots to fly them back because I was the XO or the 2IC of the unit. However, back in Australia, they decided they wanted somebody senior back here in Australia during the ferry in case something occurred and I could be the man on the ground back here. So I ended up um, in Australia while all my mates, my boss plus my mates, flew the two aeroplanes back. <laughs> you must have been very disappointed. I was disappointed. That's right. In fact, it's very interesting. Uh, the sixth person, Mark Binskin, who be later became CDF, he was the other guy not to fly an aeroplane back. So we were the only two that stayed long-term in the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one of them becomes Air Commodore. So there's, there's got to be a tale there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm Because I've asked everyone else, and I'd like your opinion too, What's it like working in the United States with the United States Air Force as an Australian? Uh, it was the US Navy, in fact. Um, oh, okay, sorry. The, the, same, the same thing. Um, the, uh, the Americans, they like Australians. And they looked after us. Uh, the commander of the squadron basically told the, all the instructors to look after those Australians. You know, um, and I, as a little bit of an aside, I'll tell you a story. We were buying a car, myself and my boss were buying a car for the nine months we were there. And uh, the guy that owned it, uh, or the, the guy that put the air conditioning in, we were talking to him about it, and he said, oh, you're from Australia. Yeah. Oh, you know, you, you, guys, you guys go to wars with us, or words to that effect. And um, you guys send shooters. Now, what does that mean? What it meant was some countries will send doctors, some countries will send other people, but Australia supported the United States with combat forces. And all of the Americans in US, they knew that we supported Americans with combat forces, and that basically created a huge bond between Americans and Australian servicemen. Yeah. I, 
share with you also that relationship. Uh, you're probably aware of it anyway, but uh, General Monash in World War One at the Battle of Amel was an Australian who was put in charge of American troops and that combination resulted in a win, a battle win that took only 93 minutes. So the relationship is long term. It's long term. And yes, we work very well with the United States forces, I can assure you. You, um, I'd like to explore, if you wouldn't mind, the notion of the command chain within the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, how important is it that the top dog is supportive and seen to be supportive of the bottom dog. Incredibly important. We're a small air force and the command chain a lot of the time is consists of people who know each other from the bottom from sort of for a fair way a fair distance in the chain, you know. If you're at the bottom you don't know the top guys, but typically you know people up and down the chain for some distance. And it's important that we have the, uh, well, because of our personal relationships, we make our decisions on how good these guys are. And, and I can assure you that I, I worked for some very, very good people. I knew them personally. I knew them socially. I, I know some of them still socially. And the command chain is extremely important. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'll talk about Australian Larrikinism not doing what they're told. That all still fits hap happily within the command system because mm. our commanders, generally speaking in the Air Force, are tolerant of individual um, excursions, I guess, provided they're not, they're, they're not malicious. And, you know, we kind of like our people to, you know, I sometimes say that, uh, you know, if the management over the people working for you starts to approach their output then you start to get concerned but if you have to manage some of these guys because they're a little bit um you know a bit uh, uh individualistic that's what you want you want people like that because they all become team players they're all team players don't get me wrong they're all team players but they're individuals yeah i i wonder also in your time in the air force i, I wonder how important was it and did it happen that those at the top uh, never lost sight of the fact that they also at one stage were not at the top. So they look down, but don't look down physically, but look down and be supportive. Was that the case? Most of the time. Uh, when I was a very junior guy, I might have misinterpreted things, but I was a bit disappointed occasionally with what was being said or done. Uh, but that probably is because I didn't have the big picture. Yeah, okay. Well, you had... You've had, rather, a number of senior defence roles, uh, command of number 18 wing, command surveillance control, control group, pilot training uh, and capability development division, etc. What were all of those, what did each of those areas necessitate you bring to the table? Well, on the flying side, uh, or, and uh, I, I would like to think common sense, um, I'm a boy from the bush, uh, and I would have liked, liked to think I brought some common sense and balance to some of the extreme kind of things. I would also like to think I was a team player at the same time. Um, 
so that's on the flying side of it. I mean, I was a competent pilot without being brilliant. Uh, so, you know, as, as the uh, as fighter combat instructor or commander of a squadron or OC of the wing, uh, I think I brought a certain amount of experience and common sense to the way we operated the aeroplanes and the way we dealt with the rules and regulations. In mm. terms of staff work and in capability development, uh, that was one of the highlights of my career working in capability development where it was almost the golden years of the Air Force re-equipment program. And I was in that at the, uh, at the beginning of the uh, re-equipment program, uh, arguing the cases for uh, you know, re-equipping our capabilities with, you know, Hornet upgrade, replacement of the uh, the Mackie as a lead-in fighter, um, replacing our uh, air defence system, our air traffic system, etc., like that. Uh, and probably, along with the Hornet upgrade, was the uh, acquisition or the argument with the acquisition of um, airborne early warning and control aeroplanes, uh, which I always saw as vital. For someone who's listening to this podcast right now, David, who is not in the RAAF, can you tell us exactly what the Capability Development Division is and who makes it up? Okay, what the Capability Development Division was at that stage, you'd look at the existing capabilities, you know, we looked at the uh, uh, ability to surveil our northern approaches, for example. Well, what what were we capable of doing then and what did we need in the future? So we were looking to the future to decide what sort of capabilities that Australia needed in the future for potential future threats. So our job was to look into the future 10, 20, 30 years and say, well, what type of capabilities do we need? Not do we need this aeroplane or that aeroplane. Uh, what do we need to surveil the northern part of Australia, for example? Um, and it was, it was quite clear we need both ground-based and air-based systems. And as a result, we've got uh, the early warning and control aeroplane. And, and part of that, that development division, was there a side that looked at how do we best interact with Navy and Army? Yes, look, that's got better over the years. Um, certainly when I was there, the uh, working with the Army and the Navy was important, but I think Capability Development Division, or whatever they're called these days, is is a uh, a more uh, multi-service activity. Uh, when uh, I was there, it was a little bit single service, but we were certainly very cognizant of the Army and the Navy's needs, and uh, we worked with the Army and the Navy. And of course, the arguments that we made in order to take to government for government to then consider spending the dough had to be balanced and we had um, uh, part of the, the there were a lot of civilians involved and uh, they certainly kept our um, kept us honest and kept our nose to the grindstone because if, we, if we'd argued for something that was perhaps uh, you know we like the idea of they'd say well justify it do we actually need it and of course you go hmm it's a good point let's 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 have a think about this so what, what was the area of expertise of those civilians in that group? Uh, some of them had um, academic uh, experience. Some were, some were uh, defence uh, scientists. Others were simply public servants who were looking at the, um, the cost of these things and saying, well, goodness gracious, it's a lot of money. 
justify to me as an outsider as to why we need this capability, which was an extremely good system. And, and during, during that time, your time, uh, because of the competing services, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, the Navy would no doubt come up with what it wanted, the Army would come up with what it wanted, and the Air Force what it wanted. Uh, who, who then gets to make, or ma then, made the decision as to who gets what and how? That, that went to a higher, um, a higher level than where I worked at, uh, and it went to a, uh, a, a broad committee of uh, civilian and military folk who would then argue... Uh, the, 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 all the three services to be represented, and then there'd be the um, uh, the push and the shove. That that occurred above my, my above my pay level, uh, but okay. it was all the push and the shove. Okay, well we we won't dwell on the past. Let's <laughs> see what happens in the future with the provision of hardware to all. I, the I mean, if if you look around, uh, I think you'll find that our balance between Army, Navy, and Air Force is pretty darn good. I mean, each yeah. of our services are pretty proud of what we've got. Yeah. And, and should be too. 1988, you go to the United Kingdom in the Staff College. What did that involve, David? Uh, the, um, it was an introduction to staff work for me. Uh, it was a, oh, I don't know, there are 30 countries at the Royal Air Force Staff College and it was just really a big education program for me. Uh, I, met, I made friends from other countries, um, my next door neighbour was Chilean. He ended up being the chief of the Chilean Air Force. Uh, we visited places in Europe, British Army of the Rhine, and it was a eye-opening and a broadening experience for me. We, I mean, we had uh, staff papers and stuff to write, but it was very much a broaden experience, broadening experience and getting to know people from other countries. Was that something you had to apply for or were you sent? I think I was sent. So obviously, someone above you saw the saw your potential and thought this would be of benefit to you. I, I, I assume yes, that that is correct. That is correct. Okay, well, it must have been of some benefit because a couple of years later, you're the CEO of Three Squadron. Yep, that was uh, that was one of the highlights of my career. Um, Why so? Being commanding officer of a squadron, you own the squadron. Yep. Uh, you make the decisions on 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 uh, within guidelines. You make the decisions on 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 uh, what you want to do with the squadron, how you want to develop it, uh, and it's the people you work with. You know the uh, the maintainers, the log logisticians, the other pilots, the junior pilots who who really keep keep you on your toes. Uh, things like that. It it's just a fabulous experience. I I, I was a CEO for three years. I, I consider myself extremely lucky. Um, you know, we deployed to Southeast Asia a few times, uh, and it, it's a um, it's a very exciting and rewarding time. What are some of the decisions you made in that three years that you are most proud of? Uh, on the flying side, we uh, deployed the Aero we deployed the squadron directly from uh, having not flown from the United States to Australia. I decided I'm going to fly from Australia direct to Malaysia. So we uh, <laughs> we flew the squadron from Australia uh, Australia direct only for aeroplanes. We flew them direct to Malaysia with using tankers, using our Air Force tankers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was a, one of the highlights. Um, I guess managing my people. Um, was another highlight just working with my people. I mean, it's 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 just a great it's a great 
family almost I, that's probably an over, over overused word but a, a a great collegiate environment with some very good very very good people very good engineers very good pilots uh, who who we are achieving the aim of maintaining a strong combat capability for the Australian people okay so commanding a squadron is a highlight of your life one of the highlights. Three one of the sorry one of the highlights yep. sure commanding a wing, 81 wing, must be a, a step up from that. That was really good too because uh, I, when I was the OC-81 wing, not only did I have uh, four, four, fighter squadron, four fighter squadrons and a couple of training squadrons, etc., working for me, I was actually starting to see what I'd done in capability development come to fruition. The Hornet upgrade was starting. Um, I was seeing the aeroplane starting to go into that. Uh, we were about to take delivery of the Hawk uh, lead-in fighter, which I wasn't there for the delivery of, but I was involved with towards the end of some of the challenges we were having in the UK. Um, and it was extremely rewarding uh, for those two years to uh, have some of the work that I'd done and a lot of work of other people had done coming to fruition. So working uh, on the capability development in that division, yep. it becomes a great reward. Absolutely. To see the decisions we're making actually happening. Absolutely. The Hornet upgrade was probably, I stayed with that Hornet upgrade program right from the beginning in capability development until I left uh, 81 Wing, which is, I don't know, maybe five or seven years. I haven't looked at the numbers, maybe more. Yeah. What took you to uh, Staff Canberra, 2001, 2002? Uh, I worked in the Airworthiness um, Directorate. Now, uh, the Air Force had uh, started a... Um, it, it, was, it was sort of a semi-safety type organisation where we started aviation risk management... The Air Force was starting to grow in the way we risk managed our Air Force. We started things like the Airworthiness Board uh, that had been running by the time I got there. Uh, as a consequence of a very high fatality rate we'd had back in the uh, early 90s, Air Force was taking a very close look at itself as to how we ran and managed our, our capabilities. Uh, and that directorate, um, airworthiness, people think of as technical, but there's also the operational side. For example, uh, when you examine a, a capability, uh, not only do you make sure it's got all the logistic support, but is the tr is the correct training in place? Is the are the way they're operating? Is it appropriate? Um, We'd lost we'd lost an a big aeroplane uh, back in the early 90s, uh, where it became apparent that th things were being done that probably shouldn't have been done. So, the uh, airworthiness directorate um, was was sort of the admin section for bringing a lot of this stuff together. So that would have been a, a big positive in the development of the hundred year history of the RAAF. Oh yeah, look, um, the whole airworthiness process that uh, was um, uh, designed by people in our Air Force, which covered both the technical and the operational side, uh, has made a marked, has had a marked effect, I believe, and I think you, you, if you ask anybody else, I'll agree, on our 
capability and safety record. Our safety record in terms of aircraft loss and fatality has markedly reduced in the last few decades. And it's because of the, um, the airworthiness processes that were put in place. And in fact, I know the United Kingdom had a look at our processes and started putting, uh, the Royal Air Force started looking at our processes and said, well, look, that's pretty good. We better start doing something like that as well. There must be something rather special about Australia and flying. Um, I mean, Qantas has, as a commercial airline, has the safest rec flying record in the history of aviation. And the RAAF is also incredible, in, not only for its size or small size, but its, its own safety record. You must feel, you must feel in some part uh, responsible for that, that record. Uh, was I responsible? No, I was part of the team that's responsible. That's the way I'd look at it. Uh, we, you know, we've had a pretty good safety record, but you go back to the 80s and the 90s, we had a, the Defence Force had a huge loss of life, a huge loss of life. Um, I just don't can, you can you explain why that would have been the case without being specific? Uh, look, I think we, it was just acceptance. I mean, when I was flying Mirages, you know, we were losing an aeroplane or so a year. Well, you'd say, well, you know, that was... That's just the way it is. I recall going to a um, a briefing by the then uh, chief of the air force, who who at at the end of this particularly bad period, he said, "Stop, you are not to have any more accidents." And I said to myself, "That's that's a bit silly, you know, because we're trained, we have accidents, you know. It was the culture." And but he he insisted. Um, and the airworthiness board and all that sort of the airworthiness processes was all put in place as a consequence of all of this, and I became a total convert. We just were not risk managing very well at all, and uh, so you know we'd do things we probably shouldn't have been doing. They had no real need to be doing them, but they, we might have been doing it for ego reasons. I don't know, uh, but with a a um, a good hard look at ourselves as to what we need to achieve and how we're going to achieve it, and uh, and provide and uh, uh, use good risk management processes. We became, yep. in my view, more capable and safer. So, to the credit of the Royal Australian Air Force, it it saw that maybe one of the problems was culture, and it was able to change that culture to the better. Absolutely. It was definitely a cultural change. Definitely a cultural change. Yeah. So before you retire, which you did in 2004, you're an Air Commodore. That's been a, <laughs> that's been a pretty good progress, uh, David. Uh, look, I can still remember when I was promoted to squadron leader and I, and I said to myself, they've made a mistake. <laughs> it can't be me. And to be honest, every promotion from then on, I said to myself, Goodness, me, I can't be a wing commander, I can't be a group captain. And then they promoted me a Commodore. I was, so what extra responsibility does that lay on your did that lay on your shoulders? Look, I don't, I don't think you feel extra responsibility. You just know you've got another job to do. You've got more experience to do it, so you just get on with it. And I ended up being commander of surveillance and control group, which was outside of my you know, normal expertise, but it's the best thing I ever did to actually view the fighter force or the fast jet force and from a different perspective. It was, it was a, an outstanding experience. I worked with some very, very good people. 
Well, 2004, as I said, David, you did retire, but you stayed on the reserve list. What did you do? Okay. Initially on the reserve list, I worked um, in, in, in an interoperability cell where uh, a study had been done on the interoperability between Australian and US forces. And out of that came 103 recommendations, ranging from something, you know, from very small things to quite significant strategic issues. And my job was to lead a team, and there was about, I don't know, half a dozen of us, maybe, yeah, about half a dozen of us, whose job it was to run the processes so that all of these recommendations could be addressed. Now, some of them, we uh, we couldn't uh, address them. Others, we, um, we, 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 we did most of them, put it that way. Eventually, after four or five years, uh, you know, we we're overtaken by events. But I mean, for example, one of the things that we did um, in terms of interoperability was Australian ground controllers were the first nation outside of the US that were given permission in the Middle East to control air attacks on ground targets. Up until then, only U.S. people could control U.S. aeroplanes, but we right. then, we then, we then, uh, through this interoperability process, were then part of the team that could manage airstrikes. Well, you've been very much part of the development and the history, the rich, illustrious history of the Royal Australian Air Force. It must make you feel, as an Australian, very proud to have been part of this history. Absolutely. I mean, our Air Force is one of the best small air forces in the world. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the government has supported us very well with equipment uh, and and we do the Air Force or the Defence Force now, I think, does better at arguing our case for the capabilities that we need that are available to government uh, and the government will use us as they see fit. And I'm proud to be part of an organisation that when I look at what's out there now and uh, how capable it is uh, and... Uh, you know, I trust that we never have to use it, of course, which is kind of a bit of a, um, a conundrum, I guess, for a person in the yeah. Defence Force. But uh, we are there. Uh, and the people that uh, are there now, I would have absolute confidence in. In fact, I, you know, some of my friends at my, of my sort of seniority, we say to ourselves, some of the young people coming through are absolutely amazing. And there's there's no way that we would have ever been selected if these people were against us uh, at the selection board. Oh, it's all growth. It's all growth, David. You've got to tell me about the Tamora Aviation Museum. It's one of the best aviation museums in the world. It's amazing. Um, it was put together, as you know, by uh, Mr. David Lowy of Westfield, and uh, he uh, basically was the, um, uh, the founder, and uh, he assembled a bunch of historic aeroplanes, and he, uh, his, uh, his aim was to have a quality aviation museum which uh, reflected and respected the Australian military aviators that went before us. Yeah. David, it's been an honour um, and, and honour also to talk to an Air Commodore who <laughs> thought, no, it can't be me. Uh, you've been very much uh, a significant peg 
in a very illustrious history of the Royal Australian Air Force. I want to thank you for your time and say to you, sir, thank you and congratulations. Thank you very much. I think you've overstated my importance, but thank you very much. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.